Welcome to another episode of Superbugs Unplugged. I'm really excited because this week, Matt Wellington, my co-host from uh, US Perg, is back. And so we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about antibiotic resistance, but through the lens of COVID-19, the pandemic that we're dealing with now. Um, uh, we both think that there's some important parallels and uh, lessons that can help us not only get through what, what, with what we're dealing with now, but also sort of put us on a better path when it comes to antibiotic resistance. Matt, I mean, one of the things that I'd really like to do is, is start off by celebrating our listeners, because I'd be willing to bet that they're among the people who have been doing the right thing, that have helped flatten this curve, or at least initially, um, and continue to, to try to fight this. And so, you know, if you've been wearing masks, Consistently, when you leave your house, uh, Matt and I celebrate you. Yay! Nice job. Yeah. If you've been staying home except for essential ventures, we celebrate you. Yay! Nice work. Um, you know, if you're performing essential work, thank you. If you've been donating to food shelters and, and doing other selfless things to help others in need during this pandemic, thank you so much. Uh, but we'll even give you credit if you haven't thrown a kegger. So thank you so much for not throwing a kegger during this pandemic. Yeah. Well, thank you all. We really appreciate you. Um, and, and you know, you are the people making the difference. Um, I, and it may not show. And I think it shows in this massive spike. But we know because everybody is susceptible that if we weren't doing if a bunch of us weren't doing the right thing, that this would be much worse. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And then I, I, you know, we have some, I think we have some specific groups and people that we'd like to thank as well. I know, Matt, you have. I do. Yes, I do. So I'll I'll start by just saying a little bit about what US PERC has been working on, because we, as you might have seen in past episodes, have been a little bit absent from our typical work on antibiotics, but for good reason. So we have been working to make sure that health professionals get the equipment uh, that they need to protect themselves while they protect all of us. So PPE, personal protective equipment. Right now, the supply chain is really fractured and chaotic, um, and it's resulted in healthcare workers not being able to stay safe. And so we're advocating for policies and building support to make sure that we can establish that kind of central coordination that's so key to stabilize the medical supply chain and keep these people safe while they're saving lives. And there has just been some incredible work done by folks uh, to step in and fill those gaps in the meantime. So a group called Get Us PPE, uh, which is volunteer, physician-led, came about, I think, in early March. It's a group of physicians that were so frustrated and, and upset about the lack of PPE that they actually took to social media and started saying, you know, get us PPE, help us figure out where we can get some of these supplies. And then they created a, a group Get Us PPE, which partners with data scientists and engineers and physicians and actually matches um, hospitals and other healthcare facilities and, and smaller providers, especially, I think, matches them with supplies of PPE. And I think they just surpassed 3 million pieces of PPE matched to partners through their programs, which is incredible. You know, and these are these are people with full-time jobs out there saving lives. They're doctors. This is just something they're doing on the side. And it's pretty amazing to see. And they're, you know, they're they're hitting all of the bases. They're not only doing the direct work and getting people that PPE that they need, they're on the media, 
Um, they're, they're being spokespeople for what needs to happen at the federal level to make sure that, you know, they can continue on with their jobs of saving people's lives and not have to keep doing this. Um, and they're also, uh, you know, joining me at lobby meetings and, and calling on uh, decision makers to act. So, yeah, I want to give a huge shout out to that group. I think they're doing incredible stuff. And um, I think that this world is definitely a little bit better um, thanks to the work that they're doing. So thank you to get us PPE. They go by Guppy? <laughs> I don't think they go by Guppy. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think so. We were really celebrating the little guy here. Uh, okay. Well, and well, with that, I, I here's one of my personal uh, shout outs. Uh, I want to thank you and I want to thank US Perg for all of your hard work on this during the pandemic. But, you know, even before all the work, hard work that you've been doing on antimicrobial resistance, I, I think I've said it before. I mean, I saw this. I saw this shift when you guys came into the space and it's been it's been great working with you Matt on that and and so I was excited to to know that you were putting that same kind of power behind um, these essential these essential things so thank you um, other group that I would like to thank is our ARAC team so the Antibiotic Resistance Action Center who've completely shifted gears and retooled and um, and have worked really seven days a week since March to uh, to step in and fill the gap in testing and, you know, started off by um, trying to support the, the hospital and testing their staff um, and have now been, um, you know, completely retooled our lab so they could do uh, antibody testing and viral testing um, so that we could potentially reopen the university safely. Unfortunately, this massive spike and um, cases might derail that, but uh, but if anybody's going to open safely, I think we could do it. And, and I would have to again say that our, our team has been a real part of that, so I want to thank them. And I'll thank them as well. And thanks for the shout out, man. I appreciate it. Maybe we should take a quick break. Welcome back. It's been a while, so let's, I wanna sort of semi-switch gears and, and talk about antibiotic resistance, but I, I think I'm particularly interested in, in talking about some of the parallels with what we're dealing with in COVID-19. I have some that sort of jump out at me, but I, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on this sort of, I think antibiotic resistance through this lens of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I definitely see parallels between COVID-19 and, and where it came from and our response to it and the work we do on antibiotic resistance. I think for one, it came from animals, right? And we, we talk all the time, you especially about the connection between overusing antibiotics in food animal production and, and the risk to human health that doing so will breed drug-resistant bacteria that can jump to people. Um, and I think this is probably the starkest example for the world of how that, you know, zoonotic transmission jumping from animals to people, um, pathogens jumping from animals to people. This is probably the starkest example of that that the world has seen and, and experienced. But of course, we know that that's happening all the time, right? That's happening all the time with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, and there have been a lot of cases uh, that, you know, result in, in lives lost and people getting extremely sick. So I think it, it 
definitely should, you know, jolt decision makers out of the, you know, the stupor that they've been in um, when it comes to seeing the whole picture of antibiotic resistance and not just putting it into silos. And I think that's, you know, we, we started this podcast to make sure that those silos come together with, you know, antibiotic use in human settings, antibiotic use in agriculture, developing new drugs. All of this is um, part of the same picture, right? And I think the zoonotic transmission is, is just so important. And I, one of the things that really annoyed me was there was a, a white paper that came out of the Senate Health Committee talking about pandemic preparedness, and they had a section on surveillance and making sure that we're monitoring um, emerging threats for disease and, and, you know, pathogens that have the potential to become, um, you know, epidemics or pandemics or whatever. And there was almost no mention of agriculture and uh, making sure that we're not just looking at human populations and, and having surveillance efforts there, but making sure we have a comprehensive surveillance system so that researchers can get onto farms and monitor diseases there that could jump to people and create real problems for us. So that's the big, the first one that I see. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that one is definitely on my mind too, is just this, I, I hope that one of the things that comes from this is, is having people, you know, recognize our, our connection with the health of, animals and with the health of the environment so i mean people like this term one health right and and, and i think it's been you know people have tried to co-opt it in the past but i think it, it's a good concept of you know like you can't have good human health without having good environmental health without having good uh, animal health and vice versa right so it's it's people who are not cared for who go in and hunt bush meat, right? And and uh, potentially introduce new zoonotic viruses, right? And um, and so I, I think, yeah, recognizing that there's this connection helps us recognize that when you use gobs of antibiotics in animals, you're going to select for drug resistant bacteria that can come back and infect us. And, and so I, I hope that the world sort of start to see that. Right. I think the the other piece you just mentioned is is really important too, the international focus on on health, right? I think this emerged in COVID-19 emerged in China. Um, we know that for sure now, right? Do we know that for sure? <laughs> if it came from yeah, China, yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, you know, this COVID-19 or the novel coronavirus emerged in China and it has spread all over the world in a matter of months, right? And we've seen the same thing happen with drug-resistant bacteria, right? Not too long ago, there was the MCR1 gene, I think is what it was, that you know made mm -hmm. splashing headlines across news in, in the US talking about how this could be the seed of the, you know, the next truly resistant um, bacteria that can you know withstand all of our antibiotics. So this is not, what's that, pan-resistant? Pan-resistant, yeah. That's, pan -resistant. The, that's the term of, uh, you know, resistant to all the drugs. It sounds so like, uh, it doesn't sound menacing enough to say pan-resistant. <laughs> we should say like, you know, I don't know, triple lethal. I don't know. We need to think of a better term for that. 
scary resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Apocalyptic resistant. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's okay. Um, so you know, I, I think all that goes to say this is these are not new things that we are figuring out. You know, we've we've known about the importance of one health. Like you said, I that term sometimes gets co-opted, but I think it's the easiest way to think of this. Um, we've known about that. We've known about the importance of thinking of health as an international issue, which is why it's so concerning that the US has officially pulled out of the World Health Organization um, because diseases don't respect borders. You know, they don't respect state borders, country borders, whatever, um, they jump around. I agree. I mean, I see isolationism as, as sort of another parallel with, with between COVID-19 and antibiotic resistance, you know, I mean, I, and, and it's exemplified by, you know, Trump saying that he's going to, you know, pull out of the World Health Organization at a time when we should be investing in the World Health Organization. We should be investing in, in our ability to work together among nations to tackle problems like this. But, you know, I, th I think about, you know, us sort of in the U.S. ignoring the, the problems of lower and middle income countries, right? And, and they're failing or non-existent public health infrastructure. And, you know, when I look at the problem of antibiotic resistance, you know, I see, you know, it's, it's overuse of antibiotics in animals and humans, you know, it's, it's in, in lower and middle income countries, it's over the counter use of antibiotics as well. That's the fuel, but this, lack of public health infrastructure so you know people not having clean water people not having wastewater treatment or not maybe not even toilets in many places um that is the that's the great potentiator of these drug resistant bacteria right so you select for them with drug resistant with drugs with the antibiotic use and then you lead to or you let them spread around by not having clean water and not having um toilets, right? And so I think it's when we think about when we're sort of in this isolationist mentality, we don't think that we think about their health or we don't think about their health. We think about them as them and not as us. And what this pandemic has shown us is that is a really, um, you know, poor way of thinking and a dangerous way of thinking and that, you know, it's like the health problems of China, the health problems of Southeast Asia, of South America are our problems when it comes to infectious diseases because these things get around. And so I think, you know, not only do I think we should be investing in the World Health Organization, but I think we should be, you know, doubling down on our investments and international aid groups that you know, that are trying to help countries get clean water and, and other public health infrastructure. Yeah, and I think it's funny, this this isolationism has kind of backfired on us in a way, right? Because we we always think it's, let's take care of us and let's, you know, not worry about foreign countries. And now we really are isolated because no one wants us to come to their country. I think we're, we're, um, of alone now as the the worst in the world when it comes to COVID-19 response efforts and 
So I think we're truly isolated in that way. I know, I don't know where all the travel bans are, but I, I'm pretty sure we're not allowed to go to a lot of places right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who'd want us? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get on a plane anyway. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that they're not enforcing, um, you know, mask wearing on the planes and, and spacing just makes me not want to be anywhere near a plane anyway. Yeah, but, no, I would not either. I, I think for me, some of the other parallels, though, are, you know, I, two two other things jump out at me is this extreme individualism, too. I mean, I think we're probably genetically prone to uh, to put our interests ahead of societies, but you know, and 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 in the United States, we're also culturally prone to do this. But the but the kinds of stupid decisions that people are making, you know, super super selfish decisions, I think are really disturbing. Like, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask because it inhibits my freedom. I see a parallel with with this. You know, I'm going to demand an antibiotic even though the doctor tells me I don't need one. Right. Or I'm going to use I'm going to use, you know, millions of pounds of antibiotics in animal production because it makes me more money. You know, I mean, this kind of. And it's my right to do so. And you haven't proven to me beyond a shadow of doubt that there's that it's a problem. You know, it's. I see parallels there. And then and then the other place that I see a major parallel is is this putting our faith in, in a pill to fix our problems, right? You know, in the case of COVID-19, it's either a vaccine or some new medication. And instead of doing the hard work of, of actually improving surveillance and prevention and, and, you know, repairing this frayed public health infrastructure in our own country. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, that for me is a, a major parallel with this. Yeah, we're not going to let's not really address stewardship. Let's just um, invest or try to get drug companies to make us some new antibiotics. Yeah, everybody wants the silver bullet. And I remember, you know, I've, I've spoken to so many people about antibiotic development and, you know, reporters and other folks, and they ask, you know, what's the cutting edge? What's the cutting edge now on antibiotic resistance? And I always respond that, you know, it's not it's not the sexiest thing, but we just got to stop overusing the drugs we already have. You know, that's the that's the thing we need to do. And that's, you know, like you said, we're always looking for the easy way out. We don't really have an easy way out on this. We also don't really have an easy way out on antibiotic resistance. Um, and then, you know, for the for the mask stuff, and like you mentioned, that you know, I'm not going to wear a mask because it impedes my freedom. I've been waiting to use this quote from Henry David Thoreau because I was an English major in college. I don't know if you realized. I don't think I ever told you that. I was an, I was an English major in, in college, and now I work on public health stuff, but probably for the best. But, uh, you know, he said, Henry David Thoreau, the, the individualist guy out there in the woods by himself, sitting in his cabin, thinking, he said, if I devote myself to other pursuits and contemplations, I must first see at least that I do not pursue them sitting upon another man's shoulders. And that's the rub for me, right? Your choice, individual choice to not wear a mask is no longer an individual choice if it's affecting other people. 
And that's bullshit, right? Like that is, that's the thing that gets me is that this isn't an individual thing. This is affecting other people's health. So the freedom part of it doesn't really apply here because it's not just about you. Um, and that's the other, you know, I, I mentioned before about my worries on interstate travel. I just saw something on Facebook or Twitter or some, some social media about a woman um, driving across state lines to get her groceries because she doesn't want to have to deal with the mask requirement in her states, in her state to get groceries. So she's driving across, I think she was in Washington and she said she's driving to Idaho to get her groceries because she doesn't want to have to put on a mask. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you say to that. Um, well, so this this other thing that I thought of with the World Health Organization and this idea of you know pulling out of the WHO and, and what does that mean for the country? What does that mean for our progress on antibiotic resistance and helping the world see that? I guess what I'm getting at is you remember the report that WHO put out, I think, in 2017 a few years ago that officially cited routine antibiotic use in food producing animals as a significant risk to public health. And there was the whole hoopla um, from the USDA here um, talking about how that is, you know, that's bonkers. Don't listen to the WHO. But it was, I, I thought of it as like a watershed moment, right? Like this is the World Health Organization putting a, you know, drawing a line in the sand saying, we've looked at the studies, we, we you know, we've known this for a while. And we're officially saying that we should not be routinely using antibiotics in animals to prevent disease. So, you know, I think we're losing a, a very important voice here on antibiotic resistance, especially in the agriculture sector. Um, and that is definitely, you know, that's upsetting. Well, I don't, I, I don't think that voice is going away. And I, and I feel like, um, and, and I think this, whole pulling out of the WHO will get, you know, will get squashed as soon as, you know, Trump is pulled out of office. Um, I was going to say, don't, don't, don't jinx yourself. Don't jinx yourself here. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the WHO's voice will not be lost just because we've started this process, and I hope that that this process doesn't actually go to completion. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm banking a lot <laughs> on that not actually happening, and um, a change of administration. So let's see. Yeah, fingers crossed. All right, everybody, uh, I wanted to take a quick minute to highlight some news on antibiotic resistance. I know that everybody has seen a lot uh, in the media on COVID-19, but there have been some pretty interesting and exciting developments on antibiotic resistance in the last couple of months. So I want to highlight those really quickly. One is a report that just came out from our friends over at NRDC, uh, David Walenga, authored this issue brief called Better Burgers why it's high time the U.S. beef industry kicked its antibiotic, antibiotics habit. And of course, I think people know the U.S. cattle industry is notorious for overusing medically important antibiotics and in fact, purchases the most medically important antibiotics out of any um, meat sector. And pulling out some of the key points in uh, David's issue brief here, 
This one really stuck out to me. U.S. cattle producers consume antibiotics three to six times more intensely than many of their European counterparts. So this is really key because this shows that there's a better way, right? People across the world are raising cattle without having to overuse antibiotics, without having to put these incredible medicines at risk. Um, so there's really no excuse when we can't do the same thing. The other part that stuck out to me is that there's very little transparency or accountability in the beef industry about antibiotic use. They don't report um, on-farm or on-feedlot use of antibiotics, and that's despite repeated recommendations from the Government Accountability Office over the last 15 years. And think about that. In the day and age of a pandemic that had its origins in animals, we don't know how the cattle industry in this country, which accounts for a significant portion of antibiotic use in the United States, we don't know how they're using them or how much, you know, exactly how they're using them, where they're going. Um, that's ridiculous. So that's the report from uh, David Walinga at NRDC, and we might cover that a little bit more in depth in future podcasts. The other update I wanted to highlight is that uh, through the appropriations process, we've been able to get some um, important language put in with our partners uh, at NRDC and uh, FACT and some other folks who have been working on antibiotics. The key here is that a lot of antibiotics that are still approved for use in food producing animals, medically important antibiotics, don't have any defined duration limits. So that means in theory, producers can use these drugs on large numbers of animals for an extended amount of time, sometimes for their entire lifespan. And of course, that's a perfect recipe for drug-resistant bacteria. So the FDA has been planning to put duration limits on medically important antibiotics. It's part of their five-year plan to address antibiotic resistance in agriculture settings. But like many things, the agency has been dragging its feet on making progress there. And so we uh, worked to get some language in the House version of um, the Appropriations Bill in Agriculture, which just came out of the subcommittee there, that would set a deadline for the FDA to make that happen and would appropriate some money for them to do that. So of course, that's a, it's a long way to go until this officially becomes law, but um, definitely a good step forward. And I'm eager to um, have that get over the finish line in the appropriations process so that the FDA gets a kick in its butt and actually puts duration limits on all medically important antibiotics. So those are just a couple of the things I wanted to highlight. And now back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Well, I think that's a great place to end this month's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Superbugs Unplugged. We really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Laura Rogers, Deputy Director for ARAC. Now that you've listened to us, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any questions you have our way, and we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. We'd also love to hear your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the coming months. You can reach us at superbugsunplugged at gmail.com. And one last thing. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and every major listening app. We'll talk to you again next month.